If you turn with me to Titus chapter 1, and uh, as you've already turned, most of you, because I said that before we prayed. I am the youngest of four boys. We had no daughters. Though my parents hoped that I might be their daughter, surprise, I was their fourth son. My dad was always a self-starter. He was an entrepreneur, a developer, a brilliant kind of a man and uh, uh, who took absolutely nothing in all of his life, just worked and, and with that entrepreneurial kind of a spirit, uh, whatever he put his hands to it just seemed to work. Now, my brothers were also self-starters and disciplined in many ways. Uh, one became the head of his own company up in the Bay Area, California, uh, an advertising agency. My other brother did a number of things. He was an um, audiologist. Now he's a PGA golf pro. He's just run the gamut and been very successful at all of them. Now, I was the fourth son, and I was a little bit different in the lineup. I was the irresponsible one. I was the kid who always left lights on in rooms. I was the kid who never picked up his dad's tools and left them scattered all over the garage. I was the kid who put his clothes in a bundle and stuffed them under the bed rather than folding them up nicely. I just, I was irresponsible. And it's ironic, especially to those who knew me well in younger years, that I am a Christian leader. When I went to the high school reunions that I've gone to, uh, what are you doing, Skip? I pastor a church. What? <laughs> not only was I not a Christian at that time, but in the capacity of a Christian leader, God has a sense of humor. <laughs> and I love that about the Lord. He's got a terrific sense of humor. But I found that God doesn't always call those who are qualified. He qualifies those that he calls. And I've shared it so many times, and I will tell my last breath, the scripture I relate to so well is the scripture that many of us relate to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that there are not many mighty or noble after the flesh who are called, but God has chosen The foolish things of the world. Yes! (laughs) To confound the wise. The weak things. To set at naught those things that are mighty. That no flesh could glory in His presence. I think God looks to use people who really are the most unlikely to succeed. So that when God does a work through their lives, nobody can give plaudits to the person that God uses. Just the same as if you went to a skilled physician and he performed some great operation on you, it would be ridiculous for you to say, Oh, doctor, I just think your scalpel was the most wonderful little metal knife in the world. Well, it's not the instrument as much as the brilliant physician holding the instrument. And so God wants to find instruments and use them so that when a great work is done, people don't marvel at the instrument, but at 
the God who did the work through that person. Now, in verse 5 of our text in Titus, we come into a new section where the Apostle speaks about leaders and leadership and the qualifications of leadership. And there's always different kinds of leaders. In the ancient times, there were two orators that lived during the same time, and they were both, both very good. One was Cicero. And whenever Cicero spoke, people said, My, how well he spoke. But when Demosthenes spoke, people said, Let us march. Cicero had a way to excite the people, stimulate the people. He stimulated people. Demosthenes served people by leading them into battle, rallying them together as countrymen. One of the great needs and one of the great lacks of the church is God-anointed and God-mastered leaders who will lead people in times of great crisis and uncertainty. And I think we're living in a time of great uncertainty where nobody knows what's up, nobody knows what's good, nobody knows what's bad. The prophet said, Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. We live in such a time as this. And people are even afraid to say, That's wrong, that's right, that's truth, that's error. There's a great need for leaders at a time like this. Listen to how many times God felt those sentiments. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah heard God say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul was the king of Israel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And then in Ezekiel chapter 22, a text I read just the other morning, verse 20, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for people to use. God is looking for people with loyal hearts. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth, the Scripture says, that He might find those whose hearts are loyal toward Him or whose hearts are perfect toward Him. People whose hearts are tuned in to God. God is looking for to use. There was a man in the early 1900s named William Sangster, featured in a book by Warren Wiersbe, Walking with the Giants, a giant in the Christian faith. And concerning leaders, William Sangster said, The church is painfully in need of leaders. I wait to hear a voice, but no voice comes. I love the back seat in the Senate and the conference. I would always sit there rather than speak, but there is no clarion voice for me to listen to. When uh, J. Vernon McGee, do you remember him? He's still on the radio. He's broadcast all over the country, and a lot of people think he's still with us. He's not. He being dead yet speaketh, but he's in heaven. (laughs) His radio ministry continues, but he's with the Lord. But when he was here, he was alive, and he came to this town, and I interviewed him on a local radio station, and I had him speak here on a Thursday night. He was in his 80s. And he was really bent on teaching people the whole Bible, being an expository teacher and using that as the platform for leadership. 
And so I asked him on the radio very candidly, I said, Dr. McGee, there seems to be a real lack of teaching through the Bible. Why is it that more men in the ministry are not expository preachers? And he surprised me with his answer. He used that long southern drawl and he said, because there's too many lazy preachers. I thought, whoa. Now in Crete, where Titus was, there was a need for energetic, committed leaders because of the reputation of the Cretans as being lazy. In fact, look again at verse 12. One of them, chapter 1, verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn aside from the truth. Now, Titus, remember, was a troubleshooter, a very faithful guy. And, and Paul used him. Paul took him to Jerusalem as Exhibit A. This is what God can do to a Gentile, totally convert him, totally change his life. Then he sent Titus to Corinth, a very divided church, a very carnal church, and Titus was faithful to be a good shepherd to those people. Now in verse 5, he speaks about leadership. Let's just read the section. Uh, For this reason I left you in Crete, and here's the reasons, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and... Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Now it seems, at least it's implied in the scripture, that Paul and Titus went to Crete, that island out in the sea. We know that Paul one time as a prisoner went there. He didn't want to go there that way, but he was on a prison ship to Rome. And the winds blew him off the coast of Crete. It seemed that Paul was there for a short period of time with Titus, Afterwards, he left. Now, Paul went to Rome as a prisoner. Acts chapter 28 tells us that he was under house arrest for two years and then released, tradition tells us. After he was released from prison in Rome, between the year 62 A.D. and 67 A.D., it is thought that Paul traveled and just ministered as much as he could. During that time, he commissioned young Timothy to go to Ephesus, and young Titus to go to Crete. He sent them there, then he wrote them letters. First Timothy, Titus. After that, he was arrested. He was taken back to Rome, put in prison again, where he wrote the very last letter that he ever wrote, Second Timothy. And then, tradition says, he was killed at the hand of Caesar Nero. And so we get into our text tonight, verse 5, and we see that, Paul says, Timothy, I've left you in Crete for these two reasons, to straighten out problems and to select pastors, or as he puts it here, elders. But let's look first of all at the first part of verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. 
What this means is, is first off, there's enough problems in this young church that need straightening out, and that's the purpose that I've left you in Crete. Now, young churches do need straightening out in the sense that there's a lot lacking in them. Whenever a church planter goes out to start a young church, there's a lot to be done. There's so many things, so much ministry that can go on that needs to be established. It takes time, effort, people. When we first started our fellowship, our Bible study not far from here, just a couple miles down the road, and then the Thursday night Bible study became also then a Sunday morning Bible study with a Thursday night in a theater in the apartment complex. Um, There was a lot of things to be done, a lot of ministries to be developed. We had no children's ministry at that time. We had no youth group. We were the youth group. And then as time went on, of course, God grew it up. There's hundreds of opportunities now for ministry around. At first there was that excitement, but there just were a lot of things that needed to be done. Uh, I remember not meeting but a few Sundays, and someone came up and says, Well, where's your woman's ministry? And, Well, where's your youth ministry? Well, where's this? And I said, When are you going to get involved and help start one? There's a lot of things that need to be done. And the church at Crete was very young, and so... Timothy, or excuse me, Titus was left there to set in order those things that were lacking. In Jerusalem, and I always love to go back to the early church in the book of Acts, it was very disorganized, and uh, they had their problems. As we saw last Sunday morning, if you were here, and we're going to see again this Sunday morning, problems arose because the church grew. At first, the church was very disorganized. They had no real designated leaders that thousands of people recognized. They had no copy of the scriptures. They had no church bylaws or constitution or fellowship hall or parking lot. It was just a bunch of people who loved Jesus. It was great. But it also needed organizing. As the problems arose, the church met the needs of it. And we see church government being formed, even in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And that's what... Titus is left to do here in Crete. So he's to set an order. And the word set an order, I looked it up. It's a very important word, and I want to describe it to you since we're going in depth here. It comes from a Greek word, orthos, where we get the word orthopedic or orthodontic, where an orthodontist straightens teeth and an orthopedic surgeon sets bones in order. The idea is that this is good activity, but it needs to heal right. And Timothy or Titus, I need you to go to Crete to straighten out like a spiritual orthodontist, get in order the things that aren't quite in order yet, further what I have done in Crete, take over what I have done already, and further straighten out the things that are going on in that area. Uh, you might put it this way, to bring the people's lives into proper alignment with God's expectations. It's a young church. They needed instruction and they needed leadership, which he also mentions in this verse. Individuals need instruction and an organism, which the church is, needs organization. Now, I know that there's always kind of two differing groups on this. There are some who over-organize everything. They want a committee and then a committee for the committee and then three committees to oversee those two committees and voting on this and that, and everything's just hyper-organized. 
Then there's the opposite end of the spectrum. It says, we don't want any organization. We just want to sort of feel from area to area and from stage to stage and just let anything at all happen. But in the scripture we see that churches became, by the Holy Spirit, sufficiently organized and people became sufficiently instructed. There's the need for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said, But everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way, or decently and in order. And then in Colossians chapter 2, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm is your faith in Christ. Now, just looking at the book of Titus, we can see there's a lot of things that needed to be straightened out. Number one, in verse 5, they needed leaders. They didn't have any. He was to appoint elders. Secondly, there were false teachers that came in. Look at verse 10. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. There's this group of people running around this church who were not being opposed, and they needed to be opposed. So set things in order. You need leaders. You need to oppose false teachers. And then also they lacked, and they needed to fill in with good doctrinal teaching. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it sort of outlines the need for good doctrinal instruction. Problems do arise in any group. Why? Why is it that the church of Jesus Christ has problems? Because we're people, that's why. We're imperfect people. And you get a bunch of imperfect people together, and you're going to have a lot of problems. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. All of them had some kind of a problem, or needed some area in which to grow. And so Jesus writes them a report card, a letter. In each of the letters, he says, I know your works. Better translated, I know with absolute clarity everything that you are doing. And he gives them an assessment. This is my view of your church, which I think is very important. What the Christian or what the unbeliever thinks about the church is far less important than what Jesus thinks about the church. It's his church. He's the founder and he's supposed to be the director. So he says, I know your works. Now, we often think we're hiding something. We may come to church and look like all the rest, sing like all the rest, have a Bible like all the rest. Nobody knows exactly who we really are especially in a large church. But Jesus would say, I know your works. You're not hiding anything from me at all. Not only do I know your works, I know why you do them. I know the motivation of your heart. I know what you're like at home. I know what you think about when nobody's looking. I know how you act late at night or early in the morning. I know your works. And there are perhaps things in our own lives that need to be set in order, set straight, corrected. That's one of the reasons he was left in this area. When Jesus wrote his letters, incidentally, to the seven churches at Asia, just like Paul is writing a letter to Titus and to this church, he called the churches, the churches, the Christians, to repent. I find that fascinating because you think repentance is something for unbelievers only. It's for believers as well. 
When we find there's an area in our own heart, our own life, that isn't right with God, when God reveals that to us, He doesn't just want us to go away and contemplate it. But when we find something is lacking or we're in some sinful behavior, to bring that before the foot of the cross and repent of it and ask for His forgiveness. And in each of the letters as well, Jesus writes to overcomers, those individuals who did not fall in line with the rest of the false doctrine or the lovelessness or whatever. So a church, and we're looking at church leadership the next several weeks, a church is simply the sum of all of its individuals. Though you might say, I don't like this about that church or that about this church. Hey, anybody can do that. What if everybody in your church were just like you? Would it be good or bad? I told you once before about a minister in Oklahoma who took over a young church, tried to get everybody involved, tried to revive it. People were lethargic, wouldn't do anything, couldn't get them involved, tried this program, that program. Finally, he took out an ad in the local newspaper, an obituary. Our church is dead, he said. Come Sunday afternoon and we'll hold a proper Christian funeral for the church. Now, that intrigued a lot of people. People who didn't even come to that church showed up just to find out what was going on, and the church was packed for the first time. All the members who hadn't been there for a long time filled the pews, and sure enough, there was a casket in front of the church. The casket was open. The pastor got up, read the obituary. Then he said, I think it's only fitting that we all, in a single file line, come up and pay our last respects to the deceased. We're burying the church. The church is dead. Come see. And so, one by one, they lined up and walked to the front of the church to look inside the casket. And everyone that looked inside the casket quickly turned away in shame because positioned just right in that casket was a large mirror. As people walked by, they saw themselves. And that's all a church is, is the putting together of all the different people the corporate structure of individuals. So there's things that need to be set in order. Titus was left in Crete to do that. He had a big job. He passed on the responsibility, or he took the responsibility from Paul the Apostle. And he had quite a job ahead of him. So set things in order. And then secondly, select pastors, or as he says here, appoint elders in every city. And in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the qualifications of leadership, And I would hope that you would take some of these principles and not just confine them to church leaders, but then also seek where they might apply to any leadership, whether you're a husband and you should lead your wife and your children, or whatever God has called you to be. As the man who came to Jesus said, I'm a man under authority as well as a man in authority. He was called here to select pastors, appoint elders in every city. Now, Paul hadn't been in Crete long, obviously. However long he was there, we don't know. But he wasn't there long enough to do all that he wanted to do. He wanted to ordain elders. There needed to be strong, known leadership. By the way, something Paul always did is to look up for godly leaders that might be raised up to take something, especially from him who was just a church planner. He'd plant a church and then he would move on. Here's a couple of examples, or one at least. In Acts chapter 14, verse 32, he's in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord 
in whom they had believed. Now the question arises, and I want to spend time on this tonight. That's why we're only taking one verse. What exactly is an elder? What does that mean? I mean, we find that in the New Testament. What is an elder? Who are they? What do they look like? How do they function? In the next several weeks, he outlines for us in these verses what an elder is supposed to be. Going back for background, we know that the elder, the office of the elder, has a Jewish origin, first of all. Secondly, it has a Greek origin. Its Jewish origin is found in the book of Exodus. These were tribal leaders, tribal elders, assembled around Moses to lead the children of Israel. And they came about because of an interesting conversation that Moses had with his father-in-law. And it seemed that Moses was very proud of what God was doing through his life, except one problem. He was a one-man show. All the people wanted to talk just to Moses, and Moses kind of liked that. He liked the popularity. Hey, they want to counsel with me. And so there was Moses from morning till night. People would line up to talk to Moses, and Moses would solve their problems and counsel them one-on-one. He came in in the evening to his tent, kind of beat, talking about all that God had done through his life. And Jethro turned to him instead of saying, Hey, man, you're awesome. You are, you are such a man of God, Mo. I, I just marvel at you. He said, Listen, the thing that you are doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out, pal. And you're going to wear everybody else out. What you need to do is get men around you who can help shoulder the burden, who can counsel the people, settle their disputes. Now, you teach the people the Word of God and you handle the disputes that they can't handle when they bring them to you. But you teach the people. Out from that came what they called elders of Israel, which later on became the 70 elders at Jesus' time known as the Sanhedrin. They had a Jewish origin. Now, the same term is applied in the Old Testament to this group of people who passed down the lineage of being an elder to others. Still 70. But later on, when they entered the land of Israel, the elders were in different cities throughout Israel. And they were the leaders of the cities. People would come to them when they had a dispute. People would come to them for direction. But they were called elders of the city. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, there were the elders of Jabesh who were discussing together should they make a covenant with the Ammonites. When Samuel was looking for God's man and he went to Bethlehem, it says the elders of Bethlehem came out because they were trembling. And they said, Samuel, are you coming in peace? They wanted to make sure that it was a good message from God and not a bad one. These were the elders of the city in charge of what was going on in that town, as well as the people who lived there. So these were the elders, a designated leader among God's people. Now, when we get to the New Testament, there's a word for elder, as well as for other church leaders, and I want to discuss a few of them tonight. The word here in verse 5 for elder is the word presbyteros. You've heard the term presbyterian. It comes from this word. Presbyteros. It's used 70 times in the New Testament. And originally, it meant old, aged. It came to mean mature, not necessarily old. It came to mean mature. But originally, it meant an older person. 
in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, he says, Younger people, submit yourselves to your presbyteros, your elders. It's the same term used in Acts chapter 2. Your young men will see visions. Your presbyteros, your old men, will dream dreams. So it originally referred to an older person. In the time of Jesus, however, it was a term used for a designated leader among the Jews. And we know that people in the Sanhedrin weren't all old people. But we read about scribes, teachers of the law, and elders of the people of Israel. Now, the church had as its leaders an elder, first of all, a presbyteros, a designated leader in the church. It seems that they borrowed the term from Judaism and from the Greeks, we'll discuss in a minute, because the term elder was free of any other ties into other things that would misrepresent Christianity. This is what I mean. Instead of calling leaders priests... They called him an elder. If they called him a priest, that would misrepresent what God was doing in his church because all believers are priests. The Bible says we're a kingdom, a nation of priests. Instead of using something, a term from the monarchy like king, instead of elder, it's king so-and-so, that would misrepresent what Jesus was doing in the church because we will all co-reign with Christ upon the earth. So the term elder was kept probably as a church term, because it was free of any of those kinds of trappings. It was someone who represented God to the people. In the book of Acts, which we're reading Sunday morning as well as the epistles, 29 times this word is used. Now there's three terms in the New Testament, and they're interchangeable. Because a lot of people say, okay, I I read about elder, and then I read about bishop, then I read about pastor, deacon. Who are these people? There's three terms in the New Testament as church leaders besides deacons. That's elders. It's the term presbyteros. Bishop. It's the term in Greek episkopos. And then there's pastor. Pastor teacher. Poimen. It seems that all three of these offices refer to the same person. That is, an elder is also a bishop is also a pastor. You say, how do you know that? For a few reasons. And this is very important. The qualification that Paul uses for bishops in the book of 1 Timothy is exactly the same that Paul uses for elders in the book of Titus. Same kind of list, same kind of qualifications. Moreover, Paul uses both terms to refer to the same person. Look with me at uh, verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking in the point, presbyteros, elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for, in the same context, a bishop. Speaking of the same person, but he's using now a different term. In context, the elder and the bishop have the same list, and they're used in the same context as the same person. Then as you go on to other texts, Paul uses all three terms to refer to the same person. And so does Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed to shepherd poimano, the word from pastor, the church of God, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episcopeo, bishop, not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God. Then there's that famous text that we love in Acts chapter 20 when Paul took the Ephesian elders together. And all three terms are also employed. In fact, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Let's just look at this verse. Twentieth chapter. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the presbyteros, the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I've always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Without reading all of it, skip down to verse 28. Therefore, to the same group, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Bishops, episcopos, same word for bishop. To shepherd or pastor, poimano, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So, when you see the term elder, it's a synonym with the term bishop. An elder is a bishop, is a pastor. Now let's just talk about those other two terms since they come up. What does bishop mean? It means an overseer. One may describe the office of a man. Another may describe the function of that person. But it's really the same person that it's speaking about. But as we get into the book of Titus, and you look at chapter uh, 1, verse 7, in the same context as that of an elder, a bishop, that is an overseer, a guardian, an episkopos, It was also used by the Greeks as a king who would oversee his kingdom or a manager who would work for the king and would be in charge of telling the king how his city-state is operating. It was also a word used of merchants and captains of ships who would carry goods from one place to another and oversee everybody on board that ship as well as the merchandise that would go from one place to the other. Then there's the term that we already mentioned and read about, and that is pastor, poimen. And that basically means a shepherd. And it comes from actually a person who would keep sheep. It's a description of a person who has the heart to care for sheep. So it's been well said that if you can't stand the smell of sheep, you ought not to be a shepherd. Because shepherds are to love sheep Feed sheep and guard God's sheep. It's part of the function of the man of God. In the book of Ephesians, if you're taking notes on this, it speaks of the pastor slash teacher, which is also one and the same person. That is, every pastor called by God must be a teacher. Every teacher doesn't have to be a pastor, but every pastor must be a teacher. And there's great... uh, context as well as language that support that. But that's for another study, and I think we've done it in the past. All right. What should an elder do? I'm going to give you several things that are found in the Scripture. They're not all from our text, but it sort of outlines what an elder ought to do. Number one, 
spiritual guidance of the church. Spiritual guidance of the church. Peter said, take care of the church of God. Shepherd the church of God. Take care of them. In Acts chapter 20, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, he said. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. A good shepherd will protect sheep from wolves, which means warning them of false doctrine and false teachers. And Paul predicted it. Paul even named them. And happy is the Christian who has a pastor who will warn them of false doctrine to set things in order and would not be afraid to speak the truth even at the expense of a few backlashes. Paul did it very often. An ancient shepherd guarded sheep. Remember David said, when he prayed to the Lord, he said, Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now, a staff was a long implement with a little crooked end, and it was used to pull sheep in line and to give them direction. That comforted the sheep. There's my shepherd. He's telling me what way to go. He's pointing the direction. Your shepherd, Jesus Christ, gives you direction. A pastor should give the flock direction by the word of God. But he said, your rod and your staff comfort me. A rod was about two and a half feet long, hung from the belt of the shepherd, and it had nails sticking out of it. It was a club to beat off wolves. Your rod comforts me? Oh, yes. When those wolves come, that shepherd steps in and said, wait a minute, buckaroo. You're not going to get to my sheep that quick. I'm ready to pounce on you. That made the shepherd feel comfort, or the sheep feel very comforted. And so a shepherd is to watch over, to guard, to guide the church. Secondly, an elder ought to preach and teach. In the book of 1 Timothy, the outline of the qualifications of the elder, or the bishop as he calls it, same person, he has to be apt to teach. And then look at verse 9 of our text. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It talks about in 1 Timothy 5, this person laboring in the word and in doctrine. Thirdly, the elder is to determine doctrinal issues for the church. Again, verse 9. Acts chapter 15, they got together and the elders of the church decided on a doctrinal issue of salvation to the Gentiles. Fourthly, an elder is to pray for the church. In Acts chapter 6, they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. Not just the ministry of the Word of God, but prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And I guess I should tell you that. As much as I have people all the time say, Skip, we're praying for you. Boy, I'll tell you what, I have the good end of the deal because there's a lot of people praying for me. But I also want you to know that I and we as elders of the church, pastors of the church, pray for you. The Bible tells us that in James chapter 5, verse 14, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Fifthly, elders are to determine church policy. Case in point, Acts chapter 15, which we just cited moments ago. There was a controversy going on. What will the policy be? Will we tell people to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised? Or will we say that they can be saved by faith through grace, a work of God, not a work of the flesh? The elders got together and by the Holy Spirit, they determined the policy. And sixthly, or number six, I don't know if sixthly is even a word or not, but... (laughs) I just made it up. Now it's a word in my vocabulary. Sixthly, 
The elder is to ordain other elders. That is, to not hoard the work, but to find others to do the work and pass the mantle on to them. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery, the elders who laid hands on Timothy. And then look at verse 5. Ordain elders or appoint elders in every city. It's part of their list of duties, what he's to do. Now, in the next several verses, in verses 6 through 9, the qualifications are listed. The qualifications are listed, and we'll cover those qualifications. And they're awesome qualifications. It doesn't talk a whole lot about ability, though he has to be able to teach. It doesn't talk anything about education, though we ought to be prepared, but there are other ways to be prepared. The qualifications are usually character qualifications. Those are preeminent. Those are uppermost. But a leader must be qualified. You say, no, wait a minute, Skip. You just started this whole study quoting 1 Corinthians 1 and saying that God calls or qualifies those that he calls. He doesn't always call the qualified. Well, that's true. But whoever God does call, he will give them the qualities. They must be qualified to lead. James says, be not many masters. You will receive the stricter stricter judgment or the greater condemnation. So there has to be some kind of qualification That doesn't mean that you'll have to be educated, though Paul the Apostle was a brilliant and educated man, schooled in a lot of different kinds of background. But at the same time, you look at Peter and John, fishermen, unlearned, uneducated men, their qualification, they had been with Jesus. It tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 4. But a pastor must be qualified. But he must be gifted and qualified by God, and thus we will be going over in the next several weeks. Charles Spurgeon, a guy that I love to read, he inspires me. And he says things with such impact. In Victorian England, he said, If I had one last prayer I could pray for the church, it would be this. Lord, send to thy church men filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Give to any denomination such men, and its progress must be mighty. Keep back such men. Send them college gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire, little grace, dumb dogs which cannot bark, and straight away that denomination must decline. Now, he was not putting down education, but he was saying you must be qualified by the Holy Spirit with the fire that God has given you. These are qualifications and qualities of spiritual leaders of pastors, of elders, bishops. But I do want to broaden this a bit. I do want to say that it is time for people to be raised up in our country as leaders. It's time for men in homes to stand up and say, God has given me this position. I'm going to be a leader of my home. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to nurture that relationship. I'm going to train my children. I'm going to be a leader to my children. I'm going to put the responsibility back on my shoulders instead of saying, Honey, they're your kids. Or saying, Church, do something. You've got Sunday school. Fix them. Now I'm going to be the leader. It's time for that. There was a father walking on the beach with his little child. And his son got his attention. He said, Daddy, look. And he was tracing his steps. 
Every step the father would take, the little son would try to put his little foot squarely where his father had just placed it. And he was all excited. Daddy, I'm walking in your footsteps. Which made that father realize that he better pace himself just right and not go too far ahead of him and place those footprints in a place where that child can follow. So God is raising up leaders. God is raising up leaders among you. As I meet people more and more in this fellowship, some young, some middle-aged, some old, I am really, truly amazed at the quality of walk that so many have with Christ. And I look forward to see what God's going to do in your life as God would prompt you and raise you up to be men and women in uncertain times of crisis to lead families, cities, a nation, and churches. Father, we want to thank you for your God-ordained, outlined plan of leadership. Father, I pray that in our own midst and in our own lives, those things that are lacking would be straightened. That, Lord, like a spiritual orthopedic surgeon or orthodontist, you would straighten out those things that are weak in our own lives. Lord, I pray that we would all fall in line and be submitted to true spiritual leadership. We pray, Father, for leaders of this church and of the churches all throughout this city and this state, that you'd raise the standard of integrity, morality, example, and not only in our churches, Lord, but in our nation and in our families. We know that a nation is only the sum of its families. And we pray, Lord, that men would rise up to gently serve by leading. In Jesus' name, amen.